Joined again by the always gracious, always brilliant Andrea Haverkamp, my favorite guests on the show for another riveting episode of Comrades Read Together. And this time we're digging into chapters five and six of No Shortcuts, Organizing for Power in the New Gilded Age by Jane McAlevey. These chapters are specifically about a hog house factory called Smithfield Foods in North Carolina, and then organization, a nonprofit organization called Make the Road New York. So pretty distinct chapters. We're going to start with chapter five, which is about Smithfield Foods. The quickest summary I could give of this chapter, just like the overview, is it's a really interesting case study in two approaches to unionizing a workshop of something about 5,000 workers in the Deep South with like low union density that were very, very shallow organizing projects. And the efforts initially failed twice. And in the third go around with a change in staff that was militant and dedicated to leftist politics and dedicated to deep organizing, they were able to really pivot and shift and go into like a community-focused campaign as well as a workplace campaign that was successful. I think that that's really the takeaway. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. There were really two starkly different approaches to unionizing the same, the same facility. And I think also social justice unionism ultimately prevailed in the end because they go to great lengths to talking about the multiracial working class solidarity, the multiracial alliances, how the boss feared when three people of different backgrounds would enter the room, the organizers, and just how creative and on the ground this campaign was. And she starts it off by saying that this is probably the most impactful, the largest union victory of the millennium, but most people haven't heard about it because of the gag order that was attached to the signing of the contract. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. And she kind of, well, in classic McAuley fashion, she starts by taking some shots at the Fight for 15 campaign and highlighting how it got all this public attention and mainstream press. But at the end of the day, it was just a shallow a shallow mobilizing approach to like, you know, societal change. When in Seattle, winning the $15 minimum wage was not pegged to inflation and it was like delayed till I believe 2022. So we haven't even seen it yet. Mm -hmm. Maybe those details are wrong, but nevertheless, it's not a real $15 minimum wage increase. Like it's not actually a living wage by any means, but that was getting all this attention. So she starts by kind of shitting on the fight for 15 and contrasting it with this like meaningful and successful organizing drive of these workers in the deep south of North Carolina that have some terrible working conditions and living conditions. The fight for 15, like if we think even about framing it as 2016, the Bernie moment, right? It's almost $18, but like, like it should really be the fight for 18 in 2021 with inflation. I just did a quick calculation. I'll take your word for it. <laughs> I mean, it sets up what made this hog victory so big is the legal system is ultimately not going to liberate the working class in our workplaces. It comes from work stoppages. It comes from putting dents in their actual efforts. And it comes from taking the power. So I guess let's talk about the first unionization effort. So Smithfield Foods, 5,000 workers. You're in the deep south, 3% union density across the state, the lowest in the nation. 
a workplace predominantly with Hispanic, Latino, and Black employees. Grueling work, the most dangerous, arguably, work that exists in the United States. Near 100% turnover because of the trauma and the terrible conditions of the employment. And just to put a feather in the cap, like this underscores Mexi, whose podcast Vegan Vanguard argues that like the meat industry and industrialized meat over overthrowing that is part of workers' struggle because like workers should not be made to do this task. So let's talk about the first unionization efforts in the 90s, just briefly, and why that approach didn't work and ultimately hurt a lot of people and set them back. So the first round, and in her subtitle, she just describes it as failure round one. McAlevey is pretty quick and to the point about it. She just says that they really just ran a standard union playbook where they did a power analysis that was focused on the power of the elites and not the power of the workers. Like going back to our first episode where she talks about the power analysis informing the organizing is crucial. And so the power analysis here was squarely centered on like a corporate campaign, not an organizing model. And they were trying to play by the rules and they were not able to really be prepared or withstand the boss's offensive, which was full of violations of labor law and threats and even physical violence and harassment. The particulars of this campaign are pretty extreme, but not necessarily out of the realm of normalcy for a lot of private sector employers. I mean, these they were running their standard playbook too, is what I'm trying to say. They got low turnout for the vote. So it was like 5,000 workers, but something like less than 1,500 of them even voted in the election. And they got crushed. And so that was the first round. And then their response to losing was to, validly so, try to take the company to court over their various violations of labor law. And the resolution was NLRB said there was violations In those years, the union really didn't do much. They just kind of sat and didn't engage in all those workers, all 587 of them who voted for the union, or even the 704, arguably, who didn't vote for the union, who did vote, who took time to vote. They didn't do that. But what they did get out of that time was a lengthy litigation battle, a new election, and most importantly, a personal promise in writing from Smithfield that they would not break the law again. (laughs) which sounds like a huge win (laughs) (laughs) yeah i i had i definitely chuckled when reading this because you can kind of uh hear the snark coming from mclevy because she clearly doesn't think this is worth the paper it was printed on this written promise (laughs) and then we find out in round two their second effort oh so we should say that first effort what what year was that in 94 okay so in 94 was the first election. It took them three years to finish their investigations of all the violations that happened. So then in 97, they were authorized to do another vote, right? another election vote. And there was a change in the AFL-CIO leadership at this time. This is when like the new labor cadre is elected in, as McAlevey has described in earlier chapters. But the approach, according to McAlevey, was only some modifications, not all that different, not all that distinct from the first efforts. So it was mostly a corporate campaign with a lot of like legislative, you know, focus. And they ended up losing again. 
of course, the company did not keep its written word, did not break labor law. It broke so many labor violations. Over 150, including physical violence and thrashing union organizers right in front of people about to vote. Yeah, and there's a good quote in this to one of the workers that was participating in the process described the defeat by saying it was a defeat in many ways, not just the numbers. We were being chased down the stairs by goons. The NLRB agents were hiding under the voting tables. The company was having people arrested outside as they tried to come in and vote. Smithfield had hired and deputized their own police force dressed in riot gear and stationed them all around the plant for the election, forcing workers to do something like walk the plank if they attempted to vote in the election. And look at this turnout. 1,000 voted before. There were 3,000 votes. 1910 for the employer, 1107 for the union. So even worse margins than before. But look at that voter turnout. Like more people came. Unfortunately, a lot of them came for what the employer organized, which was the no votes and the intimidation. So people even made it through all that intimidation. Basically, how I interpreted it as the union's not fighting for me. They're not stopping these goons. My way to stop the goons and the firing is to vote for the employer. I mean, it sends a message, right? Like the employer, I think, in addition to stopping the union, is basically trying to teach a lesson at the same time to these workers. Like, you need to be afraid and you better behave from now on. That's what it comes across as to me. And I mean, loud and clear. And then McAlevey also writes that they filed like more than 150 violations of labor law against the employer. And despite all of those violations, many of them being upheld by the board, the NLRB, they imposed no fines or penalties for the company's illegal behavior. So hardly a slap on the wrist was a result. All of this for me is just coming back to our power as workers is not in the legislative arena. It's not in the courts. It's not through labor law. Like labor law is on the terrain of bosses. I like how Mac Levy earlier in the book calls it management law. I think that's more accurate. It's totally their terrain. It tilted towards their advantage, and we don't have power there. If I had to sum up some of the big lessons from these first two, first, she writes, the notion that the leader of the UFCW accepted a personal promise from the boss is unimaginable. It should have been blatantly obvious from the scale of the violations in the first election in 94 that the company would repeat, if not double down on their behavior in the 97 election. Then further on, uh, she said, I mean, it's also a failure of strategy. So first of all, it's a, it's a failure of leadership to say like this personal promise means anything. And then strategy that after it's drubbing in 97. So then after the second defeat, the union turned back to another legal fight, walking away from the 1,100 workers who voted to unionize and walking away from the other 2,000 that voted against and walking away from the 1,000 who didn't vote, right? The union just quit engaging, goes back to legal law. And then... Uh, what began in, as a legal battle in the 94 kept snowballing, and it is a case study in how the laws are stacked against workers. And then they appealed it all the way to the Court of Appeals, and it kept being appealed by Smithfield. And then they didn't take it to the Supreme Court as the last option. This could have went to the Supreme Court. could have been huge, but they thought they'd lose. 
Smithfield didn't bring it to the Supreme Court. The the Court of Appeals had a strongly worded demand that the company reinstate workers who've been fired. So, I mean, in terms of legal results, it was okay. But you don't have the union and you have a few people's jobs back and hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions spent. And it took years for them to get those resolutions too. So that was the other joke about the whole idea that they would have to reinstate workers after that length of time was basically for the company like nine years later right it was finally resolved in 2006 nine years later there's a whole seinfeld episode do you remember that one kramer goes on strike at the donut shop (laughs) (laughs) yeah you go i don't remember what the motivation for the strike was Oh, yeah. There's that episode of Seinfeld where Kramer gets a phone call and he's like, well, I got my job back, back to work. And they're like, what? You have a job? And he's like, yeah, I've worked at the donut shop. We've been on strike for like 10 years. And they just, <laughs> I guess the strike just ended. Uh, and then he, he shows back up and the boss is like, Cosmo, what are you doing here? And he's like, I'm, I came to go back to work. And he's like, and then he's like, where'd everyone else go? And they're like, they all got new jobs. <laughs> years ago and it's like the idea nine out of the ten people who got their jobs back nine years later obviously took the cash settlement yeah that's right but the one person that didn't is an interesting story and becomes one of the worker leaders for the third round of efforts at unionizing smithfield that was successful and this person explicitly took the job for spite like took a job that was had already been employed somewhere else that was making more money and doing better and decided to take the pay cut, go back to work here with the legal protections that were afforded him because he was reinstated and also protected additionally by labor law with that reinstatement for spite because he had a bone to pick with the company, which is pretty awesome. It's pretty awesome. And I will say that I am a fan of spite as a motivator. I would <laughs> argue that my entire life, my entire career, ever since I was 18 and went to college, has been out of spite. I've been mean, just trying to spite my dad this whole time. <laughs> if I just succeed, that'll show him. Anyway, that's Andrea's uh, therapy corner. Uh, my therapist says spite should not be a motivation, and I've been trying to remedy that. But I, I don't know. It's gotten pretty decent results, and it obviously won this uh, union election. So yeah, you have some evidence to support your cause now. I don't have much of a. I don't have any. <laughs> I don't have any stake in the argument about whether spite or not is, <laughs> is a valid reason to go fight the bosses. I guess if workers want to fight bosses for any reasons, I'm there. Well, okay, so then the third round. <laughs> the third in round. In 2006, the UFCW decided to go all in and actually invest in a real organizing campaign. And according to McAleeby's accounts, a lot of this was catalyzed by big changes in staff. Yeah. So the UFCW had a change in the president, and the president had different left-wing politics than their predecessors. So that was a significant change. But then with that lens, also decided to pick a leader for staff of this campaign named Gene Brushkin, who had a really storied record of like left-wing political efforts and dedication. Yeah, she describes him as a working-class Jew raised in Philadelphia, who described himself as a leftist and was involved in like anti-war, anti-racist, anti-sexist movements. Didn't get involved to the labor movement until much later in life. 
for ideological reasons. So apparently looked at the labor movement as not leftist enough to make him not willing to throw any weight into those efforts. So this was his background. Rainbow Coalition with Jesse Jackson stood against the war in Iraq ever, like once he formed. So he was, I mean, he exemplifies someone who's dedicated to bringing social just oriented unionism all the way to the top. It's important to note, like she does a great job saying like, right now, no union existed. So rank and file union leaders didn't exist yet. So this is why it's important for us to start with this success by focusing on the full-time staff the union has will determine the resources that will be used and how the staff talks about the union. Literally the semantics and the decisions will condition the future and the terms of the kind of union or if the union even will be created uh, by the workers. Yeah, and it really uh, goes back to her points throughout the whole book where she talks about the political ideas, the politics embodied by staff matter, not just staff, but also the worker leaders, right? She believes that it's very important like what the political identity is of these workers and these staff that run these campaigns because it informs the strategies that they use. And I think that's like an argument, right? There's a debate to be had there, but this is clearly McAlevey's position that the politics embraced by Brushkin were a direct correlation to the strategy that he employed in approaching this campaign in its third effort that was ultimately successful. And all aspects of it, including Bruskin's hiring of his staff. Like he had an ultimatum where he said, I'm going to hire my own staff, put together my own team, control my budget. You can't take my people away from the campaign for any reason. I don't care if you have nine decertification campaigns going anywhere else. You don't touch my team. I think McAlevey is subtly referencing again her point that like organizers matter. Their skills, their politics matter. Their viewpoints matter. Their strategies matter. And him putting together a team that aligns with all of that and not having it tampered with from the the UFCW is important. And that's part of why it worked. Yeah, I think 100%. I mean, when I was reading this and saw his conditions for taking the job, it was something I thought about a, a lot because I don't believe it would be easy to get those conditions met. (laughs) Apparently you had to re-invoke them multiple times. Like there's a reason that Brushkin said, I hire my own staff, I keep my own budget, and you can't pull my staff away from the campaign. Because as we saw with the two failed efforts prior to the third round, what would happen for USCW is when things won't go their way, when they're not winning these organizing efforts, they would ice the campaign. They would abandon the workers, the 1,100 workers that voted for the union the second round. They pulled all the staff away and didn't even attempt to invest in any kind of structure building in the meantime. So this is the things that he understands are possibilities, and these are why he made these demands. I mean, he's probably seen it before. Seen it before and knows how it's bad strategy, like not in it for the long haul. And one thing that he does good you know, moving forward is he rooted, first of all, the workers agency, the workers is the primary leaders in it, not necessarily Bruskin taking right the the bullhorn, but getting average rank and file people really involved. 
and seeing them as skilled because they have experience in the struggle, in knowing the conditions. So with Brushkin at the helm for staff, they started really dedicating, like you're saying, a lot of focus on the workers in the workplace, but also started understanding that because Smithfield was so big, because the South, Deep South is such a difficult place to organize, they needed to go beyond the workplace and find support in the community as well. And this becomes really crucial in the third round. So like kind of a quick take on what started happening was the organizers like Brushkin started building a committee. But in addition to this happening, there was a whole broader community fight around racial justice going on in this area. And like the moral Mondays that are now popular began emerging in this period of time. These organizers understood the, the need to fight along those lines for racial justice as well as workplace justice because internal to Smithfield, the bosses were absolutely dividing and creating wedges between workers along race. Yeah. Uh, and there's lots of descriptions about how black workers and Latinx workers were enemies. They were opponents. They disliked each other. They blamed each other for the working conditions, their plight. White workers were also benefiting off of these racial antagonisms. So the campaign understood early on that they had to go big and fight for social justice outside of the workplace. And this started motivating a lot of Latinx workers to really become more militant in the workplace. And what I love about what apparently happens early on in this third round is wildcat strikes started to be waged by workers on the shop floor. We were talking earlier about some of our favorite moments in the chapter. One of mine is in response to a very large wildcat strike that happened, says on November 17th of 2006, more than 1,000 Latinx workers staged a wildcat strike and walked off the job, temporarily shutting down the plant. Now, this is like McAlevey is highlighting that Brushkin as the lead organizer. His politics matters in this moment because he's asked by some organizers on the ground that see the wildcat strike happening that they weren't prepared for, they weren't expecting, and clearly wasn't authorized by the union campaign. Calls up Brushkin to ask, like, what do we do? McAlevey's claim is that typically a union would try to actually tamp that down and stop the wildcat strike and tell the workers to go back to work. But what Brushkin says was instantly get 1,000 bottles of water and 100 pizzas to the workers fast. And this was because of his political lens, because of his dedication to worker struggle. Brushkin knew instantly that in this moment of this wildcat strike with 1,000 workers, the necessity was to show solidarity. And like, real solidarity, not just some kind of tweet, you know, or something on social media, like actually go give those workers food and join them on the picket line. To harness what we as workers know is what is helping us in this moment, rather than scolding, going to this sort of like tyranny of decorum, like, oh, we're running an election campaign. We can't possibly have people striking without the union organizers putting it on. Right. Absolutely. It's, it's the right approach. Having that worker agency was really again and again what kept getting folks involved, right? Like they even had a Catholic priest do a parking lot negotiation at one point to try to reach a solution, right? Bringing in the whole community. Because you're right, like they had them 
separated and hating each other. They they did a, a power mapping and a physical mapping of the workplace to show that had, in this huge 5,000 person facility, they literally were segregating and separating workers. And in bringing in that whole worker organizing and really seeing worker agency and the workers' uh, greater community as part of it, they really mobilized a lot of the leftist communities in North Carolina, framing it not just as an economic issue, but as a racial issue, as a racial justice movement. There were so many reverends, so many priests involved. It is just amazing. They kept finding more leverage for immigration justice groups and food justice groups. It's, it's just incredible how they kept ramping up the, the pressure. Well, and one of the things that they did, too, that was a, clearly a smart strategic move as well as the right thing to do was they started demanding for Martin Luther King Jr. Day to be a paid holiday for the workers. And they did that strategically to highlight both the racial justice aspect of it, heralding Martin Luther King as not just a leader fighting for racial justice, but also fighting for labor rights. And they were able to connect MLK's legacy to Cesar Chavez's legacy. So starting to bring together the history of movements and connecting these histories for these workers with these workers as they're building a union, understanding that these are interconnected and entwined histories as well as present day struggles. I think it's a really important aspect to highlight today when so much of the discourse and the rhetoric would lead one to believe that social movements have all happened in silos. Like every time we learn, and she says this early in the book too, when you learn about the civil rights movement, it's taught in a way as if the movement was self-contained and insular to itself, that there was no interaction and no overlapping with other struggles, other social movements, including union fights. Right? The civil rights movement was very much a movement that was also connected to the labor movement and vice versa. And it's as if we like we live in these isolated, contained worlds, neglecting the fact that we have different experiences, but we're all structured in a society where there's connections and interconnections between people. There's common enemies at the same time. There's differences, but I think the common enemies is large and stark. And when we start highlighting those common enemies, we can start actually building these multiracial coalitions of workers, of people to fight back. Right. Like history is always understood in the rear view mirror in what's behind you. Not only that, but like it gets framed by mainstream political discourse, which serves to like solidify power. So you got to kind of question it. Like if we're thinking about this heyday of the 60s that many folks like to glamorize as like a long gone era, first of all, no, I think we're living through another very radical period of multiple simultaneous pushes that all have a common thread of justice. It's not like the push for women's rights, for sexual freedom, for embracing pleasure through recreational drugs and good music, or the fight for racial justice, for voting rights, for like literal rights, the anti-war movement, all of these things and more were all the same fight. I mean, they're different threads of the same knot, much like I think today in terms of the conversation around like queer liberation, rent cancellation, climate justice, food justice, 
um, racial justice, and the funding and dismantling the police, all of these together are one united push. Yeah, so I think he understood that and he helped them draw the connections that like your fight in your workplace is rooted in struggle. Like your shitty job is literally connected to every fight for freedom. And if we treat it as such, you can see the results. It really galvanized everyone and formed those alliances between not only people there, but it helped them frame it to other groups like Jobs for Justice as part of their national escalation strategy. They had community groups, religious organizations, other non-union groups, as well as consumers doing what I think is one of the most successful consumer boycotts I've, I've ever seen. They followed around national celebrity chef who has been promoting Smithfield ham on her show and her tour. They bird dogged her all the way across the country from Kentucky to Portland to DC and including during a NPR show. It's so incredible to see. Yeah. And it's also incredibly strategic at the same time, like the uh, alliances that you're talking about with these consumer groups, these other interest groups were strategically significant for the union campaign as well, because as McLeavy explains, because of the Taft-Hartley Act, you know, which was the amendment basically to the earlier NLRA that created National Labor Relations Board, unions are barred from calling for boycotts and secondary strikes or secondary boycotts from companies, right? That's like against the law. Um, And sometimes I think you have to strategically break the law, right? But what they did instead of trying to just break the laws of the union was had these other groups that are not barred legally from calling boycotts organize those boycotts. So the community groups and the religious organizations that had became part of the fight for Smithfield Foods were the ones leading the charge on a consumer boycott of Smithfield Foods and particularly their ham products. And what you're talking about is the Southern Chef Paula Dean, uh, which for folks maybe not from the South, like I grew up in Georgia, Paula Dean was a pretty big name. Everybody's, you know, favorite aunt in the kitchen or whatever the fuck they said about her. Yeah. She had a really big platform. And taking her on and challenging her to boycott Smithfield Foods that was giving her an endorsement had high significance and high stakes for the campaign. That's one of my other favorite parts of the chapter is what you're talking about, how the campaign started basically following her around, you know, making sure that she always heard about the charges against Smithfield Foods and their working conditions everywhere she went, including on NPR. Well, they finally hit their culmination when Paula Dean was scheduled for an on-air interview with Oprah. And talk about a platform. Oprah's probably got one of the biggest ones. The union and their community allies were able to successfully prevent Paula Dean from talking about Smithfield Foods and mentioning the sale for 10,000 hams that they had made special for the holiday. I guess it was like Thanksgiving from being sold, from being uttered on the show. Yeah. The company pre-ordered 10,000 special hams for Oprah's show, none of which were sold. Zero hams. 10,000 hams straight to the dumpster when it could have went to orgs like food, not bombs. Just saying. Those hams could have went to big use, but waste a ham. <laughs> no, but that's pretty incredible. Yeah, so the, the union and the community allies were able to leverage concessions from the Oprah Winfrey show 
and get them to agree to not allow Paula Dean to talk about Smithfield Foods, which was like basically the reason she was coming on the show. Like in addition to some of her other products, she was trying to boost Smithfield hams uh, and they couldn't do it. And yeah, then they filed a RICO charge against them, which is like some kind of Soprano style <laughs> nonsense. <laughs> And probably not a far stretch because, of course, unions still have like the taint of being associated with organized crime and the mafia. But ultimately, they did not win that RICO case. You know, I think we'll be spending this whole hour on what is, you know, I think you're right. This is just like one of the best chapters of the book because you love to see a win. You love to see all of these elements, McAleese, weaving together. With, with the election of Barack Obama afterwards, I think my favorite moment as they lead towards victory is the t-shirt that one worker handmade that said, if we can change the White House, we can change the hog house. Then December 10th on United Nations annual International Human Rights Day, the workers voted yes, 2000 to 1800, a slim margin. Obama barely won North Carolina as a state. He won the White House. Smithfield workers got their union. The outcome of that racketeering thing was basically like slapped each other's wrists, right? The, suspended the consumer campaign. The union closed down a website about the employer, right? So that thing, whatever. The whole thing was successful. Laws schmaws. It got the goods. The experience of workers with struggle and elevating workers who have the most experience with struggle, right? Your your black workers, your your Latino workers, like putting them up at the top instead of a college educated group of grad degree holding national strategists and like building that workers agency won. And the workers won a wage that was the equivalent of 2640 in Seattle. That's the wage that they got near the same time as this whole fight for 15 huge win love to see it what i missed there in that closeout i think you hit it all and i think the the final thing to say about the chapter is that once they won their union the smithfield workers have dedicated themselves to helping other non-union workers unionize in the deep south and are spreading the culture of unionism which is pretty significant. So it is, again, like you said earlier, the largest private sector victory in the Deep South in the whole millennium. 5,000 workers, roughly, that formed a union under pretty horrendous conditions. And I think all of this hammers home McAlevey's core themes throughout the book is that organizing gets the goods. You cannot just settle for an advocacy model that's trying to tweak legislative policies to better improve standards and protections for workers. You can't also substitute worker power with a mobilizing approach where workers are just asked to show up one or a few times a month for like a parade or a rally, but you actually have to make them central to the organizing, central to the strategic planning, central to the power analysis, and go deep with your organizing and locate workers' power on the shop floor and build up to a strike capacity. That's really what you have to do. I think this chapter hits all of those points and also hits the point that's throughout the book too, where she says our power is also in the community and our power is around taking on the mantle of social justice 
Like unions shouldn't be shy and scared and trepid about the idea of calling labor rights social justice and tying them and connecting them to these other fights that are happening. Absolutely. This is just a good chapter. You know, my uncle owns a hog farm up in Bird, Nebraska. (laughs) (laughs) How many workers does your uncle employ? Oh, I don't know. I ain't been up there since I was a kid. I tell you what, I remember going there. Even as a young kid, it was sad and terrible. And looking back, uh, it's even worse. My mom has five pigs. I can't stand hog farming. But victories like this, I can. And it is a step forward for everyone. You know, chapter six is is really good too. Probably not as much to chew on to keep the the food thing going. I really like it. I don't know if we want to do a quick cliff notes of it. Yeah, why don't you go ahead and summarize the chapter? Just quick. I think it's great. It's not a union. It's an organization, Make the Road New York, an immigrants' rights group that decides that working within the law, providing legal services, language services, working within the law ain't cutting it. So they move to change the law. It's one of the biggest groups in New York, if not one of the biggest. They have tremendous strategic capacity through recognizing that those most marginalized have the greatest strategic capacity. The makeup of their board support staff and professional staff. Like, just listen to how dreamy this is. 11% of their board is white. 0% are in support staff. And white people make up just 28% of professional staff. Men range from 22% to 40%. Right? It is just dominated by Latino women, by women of color, and... These 150 plus employees take this organization to win huge victories on recruiting, developing, and mobilizing a large, democratic, thousands of people organization that that really changes laws. It got ICE removed from Rikers Island. They got wage stuff legislation created. They got like some really creative stuff, like a law passed. That made sure that workers' wages are not going to get garnished at car work, car washes. And an individual car wash that's not unionized has to have a $150,000 bond to secure wages. If they're unionized, just $30,000, right? Really sticking the fork to the non-unionized car washes. In that strategic capacity and participatory democracy model, this short chapter really make this organization building model fabulous. Yeah, I think that it's pretty clear that McAlevey has some ambivalence around the success of Make the Road New York, not that their legislative victories weren't substantial, but more in whether or not she would describe their organization as one that does deep organizing or does mobilizing. And ultimately, she lands on describing them as a mobilizing organization, but not an advocacy organization, right? So they're doing a degree better. But I think a lot of the ambivalences in that the challenges for this group are that they don't have a shared work site. So it is ultimately recruitment based on self-selecting activists. But they still, even with pulling in self-selecting activists, they have 15,000 members, dues-paying members, that have the ability to oversee and hire and fire staff. So they actually have power over the organization. And that's important. Like you were describing, they have the ability They have a deep commitment to participatory democracy, 
and like what they call a high touch organization that keeps people invested and keeps them central in the strategy. I mean, that's more dues paying members than I think the IWW has nationally. Maybe not. I don't know if IWW has 15,000 people. I know DSA, Democratic Socialists of America. I mean, what big wins have they had? And these are organizations I am either in, I get emails from, I love. Like, I, I, I do not, I'm not talking shit. <laughs> but what I'm saying <laughs> is that they got 15,000 people to pay dues. You know how hard it is to get anyone to pay dues? You know how many years it took me to pay a single IWW due? <laughs> and despite being deeply entrenched, not deeply, tangentially, but I think McAlevey has a hard time valorizing non-union groups in a book that largely goes around unions and how to build power because, I mean, I think that's just what the book is and aims to do. But as far as mobilizing non-union groups do, uh, it is it is hard to find them not very effective in creating change and a good example for how her viewpoints on strategy, high engagement, participate participation, democracy, seeing struggle as a rooting and strategic capacity. The book advertises that it can teach things beyond just unions. And I think this chapter is her attempt to really make that connection. One out of six chapters in a book not dealing with unions. And I think maybe for someone who's just so into unions, it's it's hard to find it. But I mean, I don't know about you, but when I compare this group in New York to more national groups or even local chapters of DSA, IWW, Socialist Alternative, other groups, hard not to love. I, mean, I agree. I mean, and I think that McAlevey too celebrates the organization and celebrates its potential because though she identifies its challenges, she does seem to feel that the organization's move towards wanting to build unions is a move in the right direction because that is something that the organization decided along the way that it needs to develop is members into unions in their workplaces. It's a challenge anywhere. New York has some friendlier politics around unions, so maybe there's something there, but she seems to celebrate its potential. And I mean, I agree too with like what you're saying about you know unions like the IWW as well as organizations like DSA, where my criticisms of these groups tend to come from a place of like knowing that we can do the organizing better. Yeah. The IWW is how I learned organizing in the first place. Those were my first union organizing workshops ever. Tried to organize some restaurants underneath the IWW. Failed, but I learned some lessons through those failures. And what I think about the IWW is like there's serious questions to be asked. So, for instance, in our episode earlier with Nick Dreger, he poses that when the IWW takes on workplace campaigns and applies its methods, it's effective and it's successful. And I agree with that. The methods are effective. They do have successes. When they actually take on real workplace campaigns, my question is, why does that happen so rarely? What is preventing the IWW structure from actually being implemented? You know, organizing work does a great job of talking critically about the IWW while celebrating its victories, also criticizing its failures. They have a great article about the one-man organizing show that they call it. One man, typically because it's usually one man. That's very specific. And this is an article about the constant stories you hear internal, not just to the IWW. This happens with other groups too, like DSA, but 
in the IWW where some individual guy just takes on a hot shop all on his own, tries to talk to workers, goes rogue, basically doesn't have any buy-in from the broader local and ends up kind of destroying campaigns because it's all about their own ego and, you know, their own motivation. And my question is, why does that happen so frequently? Like what enables the structure of the IWW to allow these one-man organizing shows to happen? Why can't their structures be held to? What's preventing IWW locals from actually implementing a structure that is in place, that's articulated in their constitution and bylaws? What's to prevent them from imposing it, holding to it, and actually dedicating themselves to doing the organizing that they know is effective? I think that those are some real questions that need to be answered. That being said, I think that the overall model, the politics of the IWW are in the right direction. I would just want to see it actually followed. I have a lot less positive things to say about DSA, mainly because <laughs> I think the politics are in a shit direction. I don't, yeah. I don't, I don't understand the strategy. Uh, and I've written about how I don't understand the strategy. And then I've been responded to with people saying, well, this is the strategy. It was always like shifting goalposts and we never expected Bernie to win and stuff like that. And it's like, that is clearly a lie. You did expect him to win. You have gone all in on the electoral left strategy, but you keep shifting the goalposts for what a victory is. And of course, you, when you do that, you can always claim everything is a victory. Nothing's ever a failure and you're always making progress. Yeah, and your strategy is always working. Exactly. DSA to me sometimes seems more like they're just interested in getting followers on social media and getting lots of subscriptions sold through Jacobin magazine. <laughs> I know that's harsh, but I say it with the heart of a critique that wants to do better. Yeah. Because I think that these organizations can do better. And I don't know whether it's because I'm in Oregon or my experiences in Kansas, but I think that a lot of these both of these organizations in my own limited experience, right? I haven't been everywhere, but in thinking about the strategic capacity that the group in New York that's highlighted in chapter six has is I don't know if these groups have nominal, like 20% men in their group in much of their structure and in their leadership or that amazing statistic of 11% white people. Like at some point, folks like me and you in these organizations step back and follow those rooted, more rooted in struggle. And I think some terms that I really like that describe some of the more radical left's limits in strategic capacity are the, the notion of the brochialists or the manarchists, not necessarily the Bernie bros, which was completely false. But I know firsthand some people that did have some very hard experiences with some white men either in DSA or the Bernie campaign. And we, we got to keep lifting people up. And I think there's a reason why Bernie Sanders endorsed Joe Biden, but Brianna Greyjoy uh, and Nina Turner, the two black women that he brought way up with him, have not. And in fact, very critical of Joe Biden. I think that we can see that that gender and racial dynamic at the top in terms of rooting our work and struggle and strategic capacity of our leadership, as well as in my own two-state experience with both DSA and IWWs. Yeah, and I think what you're saying touches on McAlevey's points about the role of the organizer in a lot of ways, because as we were talking about in an earlier episode, she's very critical of like the figures like Saul Alinsky, 
because Alinsky went out of his way to basically hide and veil the influence and participation of the organizer. Like the organizer is supposed to be invisible, but in their invisibility, pulling all the strings, right? So this was like a totally unaccountable way of doing organizing. McAlevey is really explicit about the need for organizers to be transparent in their decision-making and accountable to it. And I think what you're saying too about when it's appropriate to step back, when you need to highlight leadership from particular people more, I think these are also moments that highlight the need to be transparent and accountable in the ways that McAlevey is saying. Because when the organizer can do that, when I'm talking about like a staff organizer, it's able to make explicit their skills and their methods to help train other people up. Like basically the assumption and the belief has to be that the workers can learn how to do this too. And when you get to that point where you externalize your skills, you make your decision-making transparent, your methods accountable, you're developing leadership to replace you effectively. Uh, there's a saying in like labor organizing circles that the job of the organizer is to organize themselves out of a job. And it's pretty clear that a lot of people don't actually believe that, but they say it anyway. Mm -hmm. But I do believe that there's probably always going to be a role for a staff organizer under conditions of capitalism. However, I think there's a lot that can be done to shift the role of the organizer in the process of the campaign, in the process of workers learning through struggle. They will acquire these skills of organizing too if the organizer does their job the right way, if they do it transparently and accountably and brings people along with them to where it's appropriate for them to step back and it doesn't hurt the campaign, you know, because they haven't developed any leadership to replace them. Uh, yeah, ideally, the rank and file leadership is so high participation, so many people, high touch, like a lot of people really getting their fingers dirty that the organizer is able to step back and say, okay, all of these people pay me under capitalism to help make sure this thing doesn't go off the rails and that I help and that I'm the paid help, but ultimately it's their union, it's their direction, it's their liberation. And we've created the working conditions and the organizing conditions for them that this is seamless, that the democracy in the workplace is so seamless Perhaps even the organizers in the future organize themselves out of work because we've all just communalized the knowledge and we all show up to, I'm trying to think of a job in this hypothetical future. I don't know. Someone's got to pour water over these nuclear rods for time and memorial. Lest we, but not for wages. Right? Not for wages, but for just pitching in to keep society going. I don't know if you feel like that's a good conclusion to this conversation. Maybe with that, we should call it. Yeah. And we have in front of us the final chapter of No Shortcuts, the conclusion. And we're going to have a guest join us, Michael Marchman, who's an organizer based in Eugene, Oregon. And I think it's going to be a really fun conversation. We'll get to put a feather in our cap of saying that we read this whole book together. We discussed every piece of it. It didn't sound like an academic seminar to me. I hope it didn't to you or to our listeners. I had so much fun. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. This is my favorite podcast to be on, to listen to, and learn from. So thank you so much for having me. It's uh, so fun to read this book with you and with all the folks on uh, Discord and the whole labor wave community.